Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2016, volume 54, number 12. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTV's deputy editor. And I'm Dr. James Cave, editor-in-chief. Earlier this year, we sadly said goodbye to Andrew Herxheimer, DTB's founding editor, who died at the age of 90. Much has been written about Andrew celebrating his life and achievements, but we thought that we should end the year with an editorial that brings together some of his key interests in the form of a series of golden rules for prescribers. James, do you want to say a bit more about them? Yes, I, th- I think anyone who knew Andrew um, recognised that he had some very clear values and principles that he applied to all the work he did. And later on in life, he was particularly keen on including the patient experience and patience in the decisions we should make around therapeutics and drugs. And so we've just picked out some of the golden rules that he used to talk about. And actually, surprisingly, were never actually formally written down anywhere. So we thought it'd be useful and interesting to include them in this editorial. And of course, not only did they pick up his interest in involving patients and getting patient experience, but his other one of his other key interests, which was about adverse effects and not diminishing or minimising the harms that medicines do. So a lot of that is reflected in, in these rules. Absolutely. And one of the things he used to do all the time, which thoroughly disarmed audiences that he was speaking at, is he would say, what's the one thing we don't know about any drug when it's first marketed? And everyone would sort of hum and haw, and eventually someone would realise it was actually the long-term harms. And, you know, we don't know long-term harms. And indeed, he used to suggest that one should wait at least 10 years after a drug had been marketed before one could be sure that it didn't have a long-term harm that had been hidden away. But nevertheless, there is a lot of good, sound, practical advice that's still relevant for prescribers. Absolutely. In fact, you know, it, it's the simplicity of the advice which I think is so useful for us in these sort of fast, uh, rapid days of multiple um, polypharmacy and comorbidity. And, and yet the simple stuff is still very straightforward and easy to remember. And a good reminder that perhaps one of the things we have lost in the plethora of guidelines, protocol-driven medicine, is that need to actually consult with and involve and explain to patients exactly what the benefits they can expect and the harms they might anticipate. Absolutely. And if you try this in your daily clinical practice, the number of times you'll be brought up short by a patient who just picks up on the fact that there may be a 10% 10% risk of me having a heart attack in the next 10 years, Dr. K. But actually, that means there's a 90% chance I won't have a heart attack. And frankly, that's much better than I thought. So I won't take the drug. Thank you very much. And I think, you know, we owe it to patients to be able to explain drugs in a way that they can then make true decisions about whether they want to take that drug or not. So to all prescribers out there, have a look at the golden rules and see if you can apply them in your day-to-day practice. Absolutely. Give it a go. And I think you'll find probably your medicine's more fun as a result. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article discusses the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, or even gliptins as you might know them. We'd previously reviewed two of the earlier gliptins, vildagliptin and citagliptin, but here we look at saxagliptin, alogliptin and linagliptin. So why are we interested in this group in particular? So these are an increasingly important group of drugs uh, in the management of non-insulin-dependent diabetes. In fact, we now spend more money on this group 
than any other class of anti-diabetic drugs except for insulin. So it's an important group and uh, we have new NICE guidelines that came out which also suggested that rather than having a, a very strict sort of step hierarchy of treatment options that actually after the initial use of metformin as the first drug option one should use after lifestyle, then really all the other drug classes came in as second options. So we thought it very important to look at gliptins because uh, they obviously have an important part to play in the management of non-insulin-dependent diabetes. So for each of the three drugs we hadn't previously covered, what do we look at? So uh, as you might expect, what we're looking at with these three drugs is, first of all, how effective are they? And of course, unfortunately, with diabetes, we don't have much information on the long-term outcomes such as cardiovascular harms or, or some of the prevention of harms of diabetes. What we do have is proxy markers such as HbA1c reduction. So we look at their ability to reduce HbA1c compared to placebo uh, and also the other hypoglycemic agents and then also as is the case for all oral hypoglycemic agents currently um, being marketed there's also this concern about heart failure following the uh, rosiglitazone sort of disaster if you like so um, we also look at the uh, the issues around uh, heart uh, failure and whether they've got a concern with that. So following the rosiglitazone story both American and European regulators made it a requirement that you have to now look at long-term cardiovascular safety outcomes. So having looked at the individual drugs, we then move on to what we know about cardiovascular safety. Any conclusions we can draw from them? So obviously with these three drugs, saxagliptin, allogliptin and linagliptin, they've looked at this issue with uh, heart failure. And uh, the SPCs, the summary product characteristics, just highlight that in patients with uh, heart failure, saxagliptin and allogliptin, we just need to be aware and advise caution in their use in these patients. There was a small increased incidence of hospitalisation in patients uh, who were taking saxagliptin. And they therefore suggest that not only should you be careful with saxagliptin in patients, with uh, mild to moderate uh, heart failure, but actually you should be careful in patients who are at risk of heart failure, which is a um, slightly additional risk, if you like, perhaps. So overall, do we have a clear view of where these sit in the management of diabetes? Well, so what do we know about them? They have a moderate, and I'd say it is a moderate effect on HbA1c compared to placebo. I mean, we are talking about fractions of a percentage change in HbA1c. They don't seem to have such an impact on weight gain as some oral hypoglycemic agents, so that's a positive. And they don't have so, so much effect on hypoglycemic episodes as the sulfonylureas, so that may be a positive thing but it may be they that is a simply a consequence of their actually you know that they're not quite so good at controlling uh, hyperglycemia as a sulfonylurea is so they they have a place they are quite expensive compared to the other classes of drugs so metformin you might talk about just uh, a few pounds a month if you look at the sulfonylureas you're talking about no more than about 15 pounds a month and the gliptins are coming in at around 30 pounds a month so they are uh, considerably more expensive than the other sort of first and second line agents. But NICE in its analysis said treat all the groups the same? 
They did. I mean, nice is nice. Sort of, it's slightly odd. If you read the main guidance, they say if you look at cost effectiveness, what they suggest is that it should be metformin first, uh, then a sulfonylurea, and then pioglitazone. That they feel is the sort of most cost effective approach. But then they sort of slightly backtrack and say because actually many patients wouldn't be able to be on these drugs because of, you know issues around other comorbidities or whatever it might be that actually they they, they sort of then discounted that as as being the right approach and just basically said lifestyle then metformin and then add in one of the other drug group uh, whichever one is basically most uh, likely to be effective for that patient but perhaps just picking up the theme of our editorial again that discussion has to be based on both the absolute benefits and also the risk. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the issues for most clinicians, and we are well aware of it in general practice, is that we don't really have good hypoglycemic agents for non-insulin-dependent diabetes. And uh, we are really struggling here. And I think, you know, the more we can shift towards lifestyle, exercise and diet, and working out how we can improve patients' ability to make inroads there we are simply going to be really chipping away at this enormous and growing cliff face. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month reviews psychological interventions for eating disorders. Uh, So what eating disorders do we cover? So we're really covering anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge uh, disorders, that that area. And as we make clear in our article, this sort of makes up perhaps a four to five percent prevalence in the UK with over about about 1.6 to 2 million people in the UK affected every year by eating disorders. And serious consequences from these conditions? Oh, very much so. I mean, if you look at things like uh, risk of hospital admission, we're talking about eight times higher in patients with anorexia, for example. And the interventions we cover? So we, we look at psychological interventions. So we're not looking at drug treatments here. We're looking at a whole host of uh, psychological interventions such as enhanced CBT, interpersonal psychological therapy, focal psychodynamic therapy, and also the Maudsley model. So uh, uh, we look at really the whole range of uh, psychological interventions that have been tried in this group of disorders. And without repeating kind of all the detail in the article, any key messages that you highlighted? Well, I think the key message really is amongst adolescents and children, family-based therapy seems to have the best evidence that there's a really important role in primary care to uh, manage and coordinate the care of these patients, that it is a multidisciplinary approach that's required, that there is a certain amount of physical care that's required for these patients around looking after their hearts. And uh, we also just briefly talk about adjunctive treatments such as yoga and massage and the benefit that that can also give. And any emerging themes or trends? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that we picked up was that internet-based therapist-delivered treatments actually do seem to have uh, a growing evidence base to support their use. Early days, but, but maybe worth watching. Indeed. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and to send us any comments, suggestions, criticisms or even praise, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Bye.